take your Bible and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We began this passage last week as part of our ongoing study in stewardship. We started that last fall, and a week ago, I wanted to begin thinking about what it means to be a steward of your life in light of eternity. And so this passage, 2 Corinthians, beginning in 4.16, going all the way through 7.1, is a perfect part of the Bible that lets us pause and reflect on what the Bible expects of us in anticipation of our eternal life and our future home in glory. And this evening, our passage is all about the distinction that a Christian has to be in what he or she needs to demonstrate the distinct life in this world. We are not of this world, Jesus says in John chapter 17. And that needs to be evident to the people that are watching our lives. So as we begin, I'm going to read for us this passage, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This passage is all about the uncommon bond that sometimes begins to exist between a believer and this world. It can be similar to what happens in marriage. There are people on this planet who chose not to marry another human being, but they've made a decision to marry an inanimate object. And I feel like it's important for all of you to be aware of this phenomenon. So there's a woman who decided to marry the Berlin Wall. And you should be able to see a picture of her. Her name is Aja, Aja, Rilita, sorry, Rita Berliner Mauer. In 1979, she married the Berlin Wall and her surname became Berlin Wall. She was extremely distraught in 1989. What happened in 1989? Her husband was this, the, the kind of tore down. It was a really bad situation for her. There's another individual who decided to marry the Eiffel Tower. Her name is Erica. What's your last name? Take a guess. Eiffel, come on. Erica Eiffel. That's the legal name that she goes by apparently. And so in 2007, after a 10-year courtship, that's a pretty long dating relationship. She married the Eiffel Tower. Now, this wasn't her first non-human partner. Prior to marrying the 
Eiffel Tower. She was married to her Japanese sword. She was quite good in the art of sorting and stuff like that. And so she, being a competitive, um, competitive in that sport, she decided to marry her sword. She then married her, her crane. And then finally, she married the Eiffel Tower. As of today, she is separated from the Eiffel Tower. So the Eiffel Tower is available. Just FYI. A woman decided to marry the California train station called the Santa Fe. The Santa Fe train station is a kind of a heritage site here in California. And so she married it. And, uh, you know, they've been in love for 36 years. And it's a strong marriage. Um, there's another person, Lee Jingu. He married his pillow. I guess of all the things that I'd marry, I'd marry my pillow. <laughs> right? Come on. It's like the, such an easy relationship. And it's nice. I mean, you get to see it every night. Um, so after six years of kind of spending time together, he finally tied the knot and in 2010 married his pillow. Now he's so committed to this pillow. Look, he goes to amusement parks with the pillow. It goes everywhere, restaurants, amusement parks, and, uh, other fairgrounds. There's an individual who married a Barbie doll, a Barbie doll, um, he did this ceremony in 1999 in a Buddhist temple because he believed that the spirit of his previous wife inhabited this little doll. And so he married his wife anew. Number six, uh, this person married an actual ride from an amusement park. Linda Duharm is her name. She named this ride Bruce. So she and Bruce, it's a Ferris wheel ride, just so you know what kind of ride it is. It's a Ferris wheel ride. In 1982, they had previous feelings for one another, and um, they married each other. She's been kind of unfaithful because she also has feelings for an airplane and a train, but she still is committed to this Ferris wheel. Uh, Unfortunately, in 1986, tragedy struck. When (laughs) You're killing me, Caleb. Um, I'm trying to be serious here, but it's not working. So in 1986, tragedy struck when a storm knocked out this ride. And of course, they were separated. But 25 years later, they were reunited at a junkyard. Because she found the yard at a junkyard. And now they are back in love. This person decided to marry... A cutout, a cutout of Robert Pattison. So this is, uh, her name is Lauren Adkins. She likes the Twilight movies. And so in 2013, 10 years ago, she decided to climb even the Hollywood sign with her husband, um, the cardboard of Robert Pattison. This lady decided to marry a snake. Yeah. In East, East India in the state of Orissa. She married a snake. Local villagers were all for it, just so you know. 2,000 of them came out for the wedding because they believed that this would bring good luck to the community. Now, instead of having a real snake present at the ceremony, a bit dangerous, she had a bronze statue replica of a cobra. All right. Another lady decided to marry a tree. In 2018, Karen Cooper Became a tree wife. You know, you've got the tree huggers, but she became a tree wife. 
And so she married this 100-year-old tree in Florida. There's other people in the world. There's a couple people in the UK and Liverpool specifically who have a similar um, marriage type. Uh, number 10, a cardboard cutout of himself. So I guess if you're not <laughs> successful in getting even an animate object to fall in love with you, then you can marry your, a picture of yourself. Really, that's what it is. So a life-sized cutout picture of yourself. He put on this red bridal gown, took a picture, and then married himself in 2007. And again, a bunch of people showed up to his wedding. In 2005, another man by the name of Kevin Nadal married himself to celebrate the single life. So boys, if you have some concerns about staying single, you could just marry yourself. All right, last one. Amanda Teague decided to marry the ghost of a pirate, a 300-year-old Haitian pirate. Um, she decided to divorce this pilot, pirate uh, because she began to believe that he's causing her health problems. And so she walked away from that marriage. People do crazy things, right? And all of us, whether it's by your laughter or by your shock that this kind of stuff exists, are demonstrating that that is an uncommon union, right? That is, doesn't make sense. It's irrational. That is an uncommon union. That's exactly the point of our paragraph for this evening. The union between a Christian and the world is an uncommon union. That bond, Paul says, should not exist. As much as this kind of stuff exists in our world and it's complete mockery of marriage, as Christians... We do not belong to this world. We should not be in partnership with this world. And that's the main point. If you want to remember anything, please remember that. Forget all those stories about that marriage. Remember what Paul wants you as a Christian to be committed to and to understand. Is that we should not have a partnership, a union, a common bond with this world. This falls in line with the discussion we had last week when we talked about stewarding your life in light of eternity, and I said there are six points. We went through five last week, and I'm just going to do the sixth one this evening to help us understand exactly how we do this holistically. So the first point, and you can see the review, the review on the screen, is that we need to begin to view our life and really our trials through the lens of eternity. If we're going to steward our life in light of eternity, then we need to look at our trials through an eternal perspective. That's what Paul says in chapter 4, four verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 16, in chapter 5, verse 6, and in verse 8, that we don't lose heart and we are of good courage. No matter how difficult life gets, and chapter 4, and chapter 5, and chapter 6, and chapter 7, and chapter 11, and back in chapter 1, all have sections where Paul talks about his trials. How difficult life was for him, whether he was in prison or outside of prison whether it had to do with people who were opposing him that he was preaching to, like the Corinthians, this is called a, a serious letter. A letter where he challenges the people in Corinth and asking them, what did I do against you that you cannot reciprocate your mutual love for me? I love you. Chapter 12, verse 15, he actually says this. I will most gladly be spent and be expended for your souls. 
if I love you more, am I to be loved less? So yeah, that appears in our passage as well, but it appears at the end of the book where Paul's trying to understand what did he do to the Corinthians that caused such friction between them, even though he was a part of that church so many years investing into the maturity of it. And so as he reflects not just on the church in Corinth, but on his life, about 20 years of ministry up to this point when he writes 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you need to look at your life and your trials through an eternal perspective. Secondly, we need to look on judgment through an eternal perspective. Those few verses, 5, 6 through 10, indicate that if we remember that every single person will be judged. That's what Paul says in verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If that's true, and he says each one. In other words, nobody's escaping that reality. How should we live today? And Paul says our ambition and our attitude is to be pleasing to him. Instead of doing what the Roman politicians did, walk around, do whatever they needed to do to earn favor and earn electoral votes with the people in Rome, jeopardizing their integrity, compromising. Paul says that's the understanding of Roman ambition. But that's not what a Christian does. Our ambition is to be pleasing to him, whether we're alive or we are dead and we are in the presence of the Lord. We aim to please him. That is the eternal perspective of judgment, that we're going to be judged by Christ. Therefore, it's all about pleasing him. The third principle is that we need to understand our ministry through the lens of the eternal perspective. In verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul says, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. In other words, we don't look at people through the eyes of race or color or country or citizenship. We look at people as eternal beings. Therefore, our conversations change in light of that reality. And so all that's happening in society today really started pretty aggressively in 2020 with the death of uh, George Floyd. This all the talk about race and even this today, there was a comment about one of the politicians in Congress being all about race, being demoted from one of the councils because she's of a different race. Paul says, that's not how we think about people. We think about people as eternal beings. And therefore we beg them, in verse 20, be reconciled to God. As ambassadors for Christ, we beg them to be reconciled to God. Why? Because of chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, we are working together with him. In other words, we've been given the privilege to be partners with God in the work of the ministry. And what a privilege that is to be able to work with God in the spread of the gospel as we introduce people to the concept of eternal life. And Paul says in 6.1, I urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That should sting. Because what Paul just said is we are ambassadors who beg people to be reconciled to God. And working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, if you're not working together with him as an ambassador to reconcile people to God, you receive the grace of God in vain. 
as if to say, God wasted his grace on you. Because you refuse to be an ambassador for the gospel. That's the meaning of that phrase. That should sting us. Because now we have to understand what are we living for? That's the whole point of an eternal perspective about our ministry. Am I engaged in the ministry? I'm not saying everybody should become a pastor or a missionary. But I am saying that our ambition is to be pleasing to him. And sometimes that means, as I said last week, it means going. Sometimes it means praying. Sometimes it means giving. So all of us fall and can fall into one of those categories, depending on how God has gifted you. And some God has gifted to make money. Very clear in the Bible that God gives you the power to make wealth. The question now is, what are you doing with that wealth? Are you using that as an ambassador to advance the gospel globally? Or are you investing it into this tent that is decaying? That's the context of all of these statements. So Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We beg people to be reconciled to God. And that changes your understanding of yourself. And that is our fourth principle. Your identity is now viewed through the lens of eternity. And so he says, you are an ambassador back in chapter five. You are a servant of God in chapter six, verse four. And we do not give an offense in anything, verse three, so that the ministry would not be discredited. In other words, our life is such that when people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and then they match up the message with our life, there is no obstacle for the gospel to make its forward progress in their life. Our life is then an on-ramp that's smooth rather than a bump on the road and somebody's path towards salvation. I remember talking to Phil Johnson, who's an elder here and the leader of GTY. And he said, the greatest obstacle for people to become believers is the life of the believer. Because there's such inconsistency between the profession and the actual life. And you're speaking, kind of thinking about church history. That's what Paul is saying. We give no cause for offense in anything. And so our life helps people to follow Jesus Christ. Number five, Paul says, we also view relationships differently. And so in verses 11 through 13, which is where we ended last week, he says, our mouth has spoken freely to you. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us. You're just restrained by your own affections. I speak to you as children, open up your heart wide to us. In other words, the idea is that believers love other believers. There's mutual affection in the body of Christ. Jesus said in John, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how people will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ. That's all Paul is saying. I love you. My heart is wide open for you. I'm holding nothing back. Verse 12, you're holding yourself back from loving me. And then as I read earlier, 12, 15, I will spend and will be expended for your soul. That's the standard. Whatever it takes to help someone become more like Jesus Christ, I'm willing to do. But that takes affection. And for some reason, the Corinthians were unwilling to do that. So Paul in 6, 11 through 13 says, something's wrong. 
7-2, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. So now he returns back to what he started in 6-11 through 13. Make room for us, he says. Open your heart wide because I didn't do anything to you. So I'm asking you to love me back like I love you. So then what happened in Corinth that caused them to stop loving, respecting, following Paul? The answer is in our passage. 6.14 through 7.1. And that takes us to our final principle of living your life through the lens of eternity. And that is understanding holiness with an eternal perspective. Holiness through an eternal perspective. This is a, as I said last week, kind of a, a rabbit trail in Paul's writing. And you can see that based on what I just said in 6, 1, 11 through 13 and then 7, 2. He comes back to the idea of love and a wide open heart for mutual affection. And what Paul is doing is arguing that the reason you refuse to love me is because you're in love with the world. That's the main point here. You can either love God and his people or love the world. So if you begin to see in your life a deterioration for the love of God or in your love for people, God's people, then what Paul is saying, examine if you are falling in love with the world. Because the apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 had a very similar understanding. So in verse 15, John says, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Then skip to chapter 3 and verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, and nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who doesn't love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We love by this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So now John makes the same connection. You either love the world and the things of the world, and then you end up hating, murdering your brothers, and you don't love God, or you love your brothers, and then you don't withhold whatever goods you may have when they have need. And then you go to James chapter 4. We know James 4.4, 4, but get the context of James 4.4. 4. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. 
You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. You adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? We always take out that first part of chapter, of verse 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, right? Many of us have memorized that. But the context is what? Conflict among believers. A lack of love. And Paul, uh, uh, James says it's attributed to your love for the world. So you've got Paul, you've got James, you've got John making the same exact argument. That if you see a declining love for other people, the source most likely is you're becoming a little bit too much in love with the world. And if, he, if all these apostles had to say that to all of their respective communities, you know that it was a problem. This isn't just something that like, I have nothing else to say. Gosh, how am I going to start chapter four? We'll just throw this out there. Maybe somebody will bite it. Maybe there's one person in the church has a problem with this. That's not how the New Testament was written. It was written in response to specific problems. These are pastoral letters. And so they're dealing with actual issues in the church. And so now you have multiple individuals saying to us, if there's a problem in your life, in loving other people, examine how you think about the world. And of course, that creates a chasm between you and people, but that also creates a chasm between you and God. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, it says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So now sin, sure, specifically, but broadly speaking, love for the world, has now created a distance between God and us. Ezekiel 14, we don't go there too often, but I'd like you to go there because it's such a helpful passage on this specific issue. Ezekiel 14, and you should be able to see that on the screen, I believe. Beginning in verse 4, this is what he writes. This is God speaking to Israel. This is the Lord. I'm sorry, therefore speak to them and tell them. Thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet and I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all of your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person." I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from among my people so you will know that I am the Lord. So now this problem existed in ancient Israel where the people of God, specifically the prophets and the priests, began to set up idols. And I'll give you another passage a little bit later where that was happening in Ezekiel. Where they are bringing in all these idols into their life and they're wondering, why is God so distant from me? And God says, it's because you've got an idol between me and you. And now there's a chasm in the distance, spiritually speaking. 
That's where Paul begins to apply the principle of loving those world will ultimately have an adverse effect on your relationships with people. And so now Paul gets into our relationship with this world. Pastor John preached this passage a year ago, last May, and you should listen to it. It was a slightly different application, but he said this helpful observation. He said, you should look at this section as reflecting three phases of the Christian life, the past, the present, and the future. The past we saw back in chapter five. In verse 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, that all things have passed away, behold, new things have come. So in other words, we are completely different. We've been fully transformed as spiritual beings. The old has completely passed away, which is why we no longer view people who have been transformed in any other way than as spiritual beings, those who exist forever, and we have the opportunity to shape them for eternity. So that's the past. We are new creatures in Christ. And then the present is reflected by the present tense verbs in our passage. Verses 14 through 16. And then the future comes into the conversation in verse 16. In the middle of the verse, Paul writes, I will, that's a future tense. I will dwell. I will walk. I will be. So now, and then verse 17, I will welcome. I will be a father. So now he shifts from the present to the future. And I want to look at all of these phases, this, the middle and the, sec- and the third specifically, that we need to understand how that affects our lives today in the present as believers. And so verse 14 says this, don't be bound together with unbelievers. It's a present tense command, implying this is to be the habitual pattern of our lives. This should never, ever happen. Do not ever be bound together with unbelievers. That's the idea. No exceptions. This is true of you every single day of your Christian existence. And the verb that Paul brings into this verse doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else before the New Testament in secular Greek. Paul takes two words and blends them together to create an image in the reader's mind. And the two words are another binding or somebody who has bound two animals together that should not be bound together. Now, the idea comes from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That's the idea. So in other words, the the, the word that Paul brings together is to have a, Two animals that are mismatched because they're of different species. They are of different abilities, different temperaments, an ox and a donkey. And if you put a yoke over them and ask them to plow or push them to plow a field, if asking probably won't help, but push them to plow a field, you're going to get a mess because they don't belong together. So Paul says, just like in agriculture, creating a bond between two things that do not belong together, doing that in the Christian life, believer and an unbeliever, that kind of bind will not work out well for you. It creates dissonance in the Christian life. 
Now, what does Paul mean by that? How extensive is this principle? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul is talking about a sinning believer who refuses to repent, horrible sins, and incest is mentioned here. And um, Paul says this in verse 10, when I'm telling you to stay away from people, verse 9, immoral people, verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, covetous, swindlers, idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called believer or brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So in other words, Paul says, listen, when I'm telling you to separate, I'm not talking about separation from the unbeliever. So then in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, Paul isn't talking about complete and total separation from unbelievers because then that would contradict 5, 10, and 11. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, Paul talks about a husband and a wife, a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her. She must not send her husband away. So now he talks about an individual who became a Christian. And now the question is, do I divorce my unbelieving spouse because Christians and non-Christians should not be married? And Paul says, no. If that unbelieving spouse wishes to remain with you, even though you became a Christian, you need to stay with that unbelieving spouse. So now we're talking about the extent of chapter 6, verse 14, is not a way to nullify a marriage covenant. This is not an out out of a marriage that you don't like. You stay together with the unbelieving spouse if he or she wants to stay with you. In 1 Corinthians 10, 27, this is the context, verse chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians is about eating meat offered to idols. And in verse 27, he says this, if anyone of the believers invites you and you want to go eat anything that is said before you without asking questions for conscience sake. So that kind of reaffirms the first passage. That is, if unbelievers invite you into their house to have a meal, go and eat whatever they offer. So now, again, it's not about complete separation. You should have, I should, we all should have unbelieving friends. So if Paul has all these other parameters that are explained in other in 1 Corinthians specifically, how do we apply 6.14? Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Obviously, it's not what we, some may extremely say, I'm going to move to the mountains, get a bunker, and I'm going to live isolated because this world is really, really corrupt. That's what the Essenes did in the time of Jesus. They moved out of Jerusalem. They lived in the Qumran area. Dead Sea Scrolls, if you heard of those, they were found in the Qumran area by the Dead Sea near Masada area. And they said, everything is polluted in Jerusalem. The temple is polluted. We're not going to participate in the offerings and the sacrifices. That's all horrible. We're the only pure people. So they wore, they wore white gowns to signify their purity. Paul isn't talking about complete isolation from this world because Jesus said in John 17, 15, when he prays to his father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. So then what is Paul talking about in 6.14? Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Well, the context here is religious worship, cultic offering, sacrifices, terms 
are brought into this discussion. In verse 17, for example, don't touch what is unclean. That's a cultic term. You don't offer unclean animals to God. In verse 16, the temple of God or idols. Again, cultic imagery, worship, religious worship. So I would say first, by application, it does mean that a believer who has been extracted from a religious system that is characterized by this kind of worship. Perhaps it's idolatrous worship, like the Buddhist temple down the street, or Hinduism, or Islam. Those kind of religious movements, and there's so many, obviously, that have rituals that are a part of that, that signify religious commitment to that deity. I do believe Paul is prohibiting that. And say, no, you're different now. You can go look at 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 when Paul talks about the idols being demons, actually. So when people offer things to idols, they're actually worshiping demons. And I think we all kind of would agree that false religion is demonic. It's from Satan. It's a way to counterfeit true religion or true worship of God. But I also think by application, Paul is talking about total separation from this world in regards to morality and ethics. So in 7.1, we'll get there, but this is what he says. We are to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, material and immaterial, spiritual and physical, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul gives us another illustration of a similar issue. Verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. So now you have this idea that a Christian does not voluntarily engage in evil, in sin, in the morality, in this world system, in other words. So yeah, the application is broader than that. Now, it doesn't say that you cannot have a legal relationship with an unbeliever, in other words, like a partner in a business. But it does say that as you evaluate your relationships with unbelievers, you have to question, is there any impact on your worship to God? That's how I would phrase it, similar, simply put. Does that relationship adversely affect your worship? Because again, cultic language is used throughout these verses, which is worship. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, After 11 chapters of a theological foundation of sin, justification, salvation, glorification. At the end of all that, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. So now worship becomes our life. Don't be conformed to this world. The first application of that principle. Do not be conformed to this world world and rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the principle Paul puts forward is make sure that you are not bound ever together with an unbeliever. And then he presents five contrasts, five contrasts, five words, and you can see them. And of course, you know how much I like alliteration. I was taught at the seminary and so there's no way to escape it. So I'm going to give you four, five C's. See that? I couldn't figure out a single word for E. So you get two words. Corporate and dwelling. Thank you. Somebody's impressed. 
took me hours. All right, partnership. Partnership is the first one. For what partnership, verse 14, have righteousness and lawlessness? That's all about your conduct. There is a unique nuance. That's why I did that in each of these terms. It's not just straight up synonyms. They are synonymous, but they have nuances from word to word. This is about a legal joint ownership of something. So in Luke 5, 7, it talks about Peter's fishing business. He had partners in that business. That's what Luke 5, 7 says. And the goal here is a common goal, a common activity, a common interest, a common sharing of something. Goals, activities, interests, and sharing. So what Paul says, righteousness and lawlessness have nothing in common. They're not moving in the right in the same direction. Romans 6.19 says this, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Just as you presented your members, your body parts, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I hope you see how connected that is to our passage. Lawlessness, former way of life, Righteousness, current way of life. One leads to more lawlessness. One leads to sanctification, which is 7-1. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, perform miracles, cast out demons in your name? And I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So end of the day, an individual who lives his life in lawlessness will be rejected by Christ. And that's what Paul says. There is nothing in common or there's no partnership as pertaining to our conduct with lawlessness. The second term is fellowship. What fellowship has light with darkness? And that is about communion. It's a more intimate term. Now, light and darkness are terms that were very popular at that time period. The New Testament is not the only place where people wrote about darkness and light. There's sons of darkness, there's sons of light. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 980 or so scrolls that have been found, there are works that describe war between sons of light and sons of darkness. It's it's creating this um, system of the dichotomy, right? You've got dark and you've got light. And those two do not coexist. And so Paul is saying there is no communion between darkness and light. And there is such a radical difference that in Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says directly, you were formerly darkness. It doesn't say a son of darkness. You exhibited darkness. You lived like you are in the darkness. He literally says you were formerly darkness. Now you are light. It's as if you're nature your your entire being has been transformed therefore 5 8 walk as children of the light so in other words because such a change has taken place we have nothing to do with darkness the third word is harmony verse 15 what harmony has christ with belial and the word there is cooperation alliance is a good synonym for this now belial and some manuscripts actually say belier are at the end is another word for Satan. That's how it was presented in many writings around the time of the New Testament. And it's about 
having harmony or shared interest. The word there is symphony. That's the Greek word, symphony. As if they are in agreement with something. As if they're making a joint decision together. So in in Judges 20.13, there is a verse that uses this word, sons of Belial. And this is what it says. Now then, this is the scene in Judges about homosexuality. Deliver these men, the worthless fellows, literally sons of Belial, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. They committed such a horrific sin that people came and said, we need to have those men and we're going to call them sons of Belial, sons of the devil. Same idea. Because they're so evil in what they did. It's as if they are the embodiment of Satan. They're diabolical. In Deuteronomy 13, 14, in the Hebrew uh, uh, version, it says, these people are sons of Belial who seduce others to false worship. Sons of Belial. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, as I mentioned a minute ago, there were individuals who belonged to Belial, and they were at enmity with those who belonged to the light, the angels of light versus the angels of Belial or angels of destruction. So in all of these writings that are not in the Bible, they're not canonical, they're not authoritative, they're not inspired, but people wrote about them because they kept trying to explain what does it mean to be of Belial. Every time, it's the deepest and the worst imagination of sin and darkness like homosexuality. And so Paul, not by accident, he could have said Diabolos, the devil. He could have said Satan, Satan. He knew those words. He could have said the accuser, the liar, the deceiver. All those are synonyms. The dragon, right? Revelation talks about him as a dragon. There's plenty of synonyms for Satan. He uses Belial because at that time, Belial was associated with the worst of the worst. Now take that profile and then read that phrase. Is there anything in harmony between Jesus and the source of all that's the worst of the worst? Can you ever have any kind of unity, harmony, symphony? Paul says, so if you represent Christ and formerly you represented Satan, that's what the Bible says, how can you go back? To being in unity with that former life. In Colossians 1, 12 and 13, Paul writes, Giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who rescued us from the authority or the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. So there's that transfer that Paul talks about elsewhere. Belial is all about the kingdom of darkness setting itself up against the kingdom of light. Belial is the representative of the kingdom of darkness. Christ is the representative of the kingdom of light. And when we flirt with the world, when we're friends with the world, when we allow the world to transform our thinking into world-like thinking, what happens is I think, is described in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 
Paul speaks of false apostles, deceitful workers, who disguise themselves as the apostles of Christ. No wonder. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So even Satan, to seduce people from the kingdom of light or to prohibit people from being interested, listening to the message about the kingdom of light, disguises himself as the angel of light. That's hypocrisy. That's inconsistency. When we as believers flirt with the world, we are taking on a form that isn't ours. We're inconsistent. We're hypocrites. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to us. And at that point, Jesus' words to Peter are appropriate. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me because you're not thinking about the plan of God, but man's plan. So in other words, any participation in Satan's causes doesn't just simply make us neutral. It actually makes us a stumbling block to the cause of Christ. And we have to understand that you're either like the son of Belial or you're like the son of light. Number four is what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This is all about your nature, your condition, who you are. In this word, Jesus uses this word in John 13, 8. He comes up to Peter, about to wash his feet. Peter pulls him back and says, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, fine. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. That's the connected word. You have no participation in me. There is no unity between you and me, Jesus is saying to Peter. This is all about being in union with Christ. This is the condition or the nature or the common ground that we have. In Romans 8, 9, Paul writes, you either have the spirit of God or you don't. You either have the spirit of Christ or you don't. There is no neutral ground. So if you have the spirit of Christ, then Paul says, put to death the deeds of darkness. And finally, the fifth term is verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is all about your corporate indwelling. The Holy Spirit abides with the believers permanently. That's the meaning here. So if you think about this from a worship point of view, he says, how can you have the temple of God filled with idols? Does that make sense? You're either worshiping idols or you're worshiping God. And this is the passage I'd like to show you in Ezekiel chapter 8. This is one of the reasons why the exile took place. Because the spiritual leaders of Israel began to bring idols into the temple and bow down before them. And God's glory departs because of that from the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 8, Beginning in verse 5, this is what we see. Then he said to me, son of man, this is um, the representative from God. Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. In other words, they pushed me out. 
and yet you will still see greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they're committing there. So I entered, and I looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing at the front of them was 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jezaniah and the son of Shapham standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. And he said to be son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say, the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. This has to be the lowest point in Israel's spiritual history. Because the spiritual leaders, imagine the 36 elders of Grace Church with John MacArthur at the front doing something like that. That's the scene. How horrific. You don't think they would have misled the people of God who weren't spiritual leaders? Into false worship. So that's chapter 8. And in chapter 11. The glory of God. Goes east. And then it leaves. God said. You don't want me in your temple. Great. I'm gone. And he leaves. And until. Ezekiel 40 through 48. A future. Fulfillment hasn't happened yet. That's when the glory returns. So in other words, what Paul is doing, he's picking up some of this imagery from Ezekiel. And it says, can you imagine? In God's temple, idols. Does that make sense? And he says, there's nothing in agreement between idols and God. Because I will dwell among them, verse 16. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Verse 16, back up a little bit. They are, we are the temple of the living God. So what Paul is now doing is saying, we as believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, corporately speaking. The glory of God, the spirit of God, the presence of God was in the tabernacle. It was in the temple. God dwelt in Christ. Tabernacle language is used there in John 1. And now we are the temple of the living God. The idols are dead. They're demons. Paul intentionally says, but we are the temple of the living God. We're not dead. So how can there be any commonality? That's the appalling nature of this statement. There should be nothing in common with that kind of a lifestyle. So what Paul is doing ultimately, he says, if you as a believer are engaging in worldly affairs, if your life is characterized by worldliness, and you love the world, like John, 1 John 2.15 says, then this is what's really happening in your life. You're like the son of Belial. You're like the one worshiping idols in the temple of God. You're like the one who is strapped to another animal that is completely different from you, and you're trying to do some kind of a difficult task, it's never going to be successful. The inconsistency and the irrationality and the dissonance with all these images are supposed to tell us that makes no sense. 
for the Christian in any way to be obsessed with the world or to love the world or to be friendly with the world. And God says, let me motivate you not to live in this way. Verse 16, I will be with them. I will dwell. I will walk. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I'll be a father to you. I will welcome you, verse 17. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul digs deep into the Torah and into the prophets. And all those statements are from Leviticus, Ezekiel, Isaiah, 2 Samuel, Isaiah 43, Jeremiah 51, 2 Samuel 7. If you want those, I'm happy to share them with you later. I don't want to do another hour 20 sermon. Paul isn't making stuff up. He's going back into the Old Testament and says, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it is almost verbatim in many places. And what Paul is trying to get us to do is to say, there is an expectation of separation, threefold separation. If you look at verse 17, come out of their midst, be separate, do not touch. Cultic language, again, Before you go to worship in the temple, here's what you're supposed to do. And God says, come out from the people that don't worship me. Be different. This is all about a total rejection of the pagan lifestyle. And what is the fulfillment? I will be a father. You'll be my sons and daughters. I will be their God. I will dwell with them and I will walk among them. This has begun. It hasn't been fully fulfilled. The fulfillment is in Revelation chapter 21. And as we get toward the end, let me read it for you. And I heard a loud voice, verse three, from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Does that not sound like Chapter 6, verse 17. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now we know that that's the future because there's still crying and tears and on and on and on. But then look at verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things. The promises we just read. And I will be his God and he will be my son. There's that adoption language. But... For the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So even here at the end, there's a division between those who experience the dwelling of God and God walking among them and calling them sons and daughters versus those who are outside the unbelieving, the immoral, the murderers. It's very similar to the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What's the point of all this? 7-1. That's the climax of this entire paragraph. Therefore, so we have the promise of God dwelling with us, God welcoming us, and God adopting us into his family. We moved from temple imagery to family imagery in that little paragraph. Because of all those promises that have begun to be fulfilled and will be finally fulfilled in Revelation chapter 22. Therefore, having these, and some people translate amazing promises, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the climax of this whole thing. The love of the world has messed up your love for other believers. Therefore, come back. Purify yourself from that love. Separate yourself. Do not touch what is unclean. Come out of their midst. Embrace the promises from God of being his child. And you do that by complete cleansing. Total sanctification. Spirit and flesh. Oh, that, that just means complete. Total. Other passages in the New Testament speak similarly. And then perfecting holiness, it actually means completing holiness. Moving toward the end goal. The root in that word actually means death. Somebody who would die. Somebody who would fulfill the purpose for his or her existence. So in other words, the purpose of our salvation is holiness. So we're moving toward that end goal. And we do so in the fear of God. Fear of God appeared before, right? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man, Paul says in chapter 5. And so now, because of our fear for the Lord, our love for him and our fear for him, we abstain from sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness or to hate wickedness. So, as we think about stewarding our lives, this is a part of it. It's remembering that eternity is coming faster as we get older. And we can't stop it, and we can't avoid it, and we can't avoid Judgment Day. And the way we know that we're actually moving in that direction towards holiness is we love people in the church more than this world. And that's something that only you can answer in your own heart. And there's so many ways to express that. We can talk about that offline. Do you really love the people in the church? Do you love the church? Do you love Christ or is there a separation relationally? And this becomes a check mark for you. Sunday morning, Friday night, Sunday night. But six days a week, there's no love for the people of God. There's no love for God. And so Paul says, examine yourself and begin to complete holiness in your life in the fear of God. And as we did last week, the Valley of Vision has a prayer called, called God Honored that'll help us. Oh God, all thy works praise thee and thy saints bless thee. Let me be numbered with thy holy ones. Resemble them in character and condition. Sit with them at Jesus' feet. May my religion be always firmly rooted in thy word. My understanding divinely informed. My affections holy and heavenly. My motives simple and pure. And my heart never wrong with thee. Deliver me from the natural darkness of my own mind. From the corruptions of my heart. From the temptations to which I am exposed. From the daily snares that attend me. I am in constant danger while I am in this life. Let thy watchful eye ever be upon me for my defense. Save me from the power of my worldly and spiritual enemies and from all painful evils to which I have exposed myself. 
until the day of life dawns above. Let there be unrestrained fellowship with Jesus. Until fruition comes, may I enjoy the earnest of my inheritance and the first fruits of the Spirit. Until I finish my course with joy, may I pursue it with diligence. In every part display the resource of the Christian and adorn the doctrine of thee, my God, in all things. I think that's an appropriate prayer. And let's respond with it as we sing to our God. Stand and Ivan will lead us in song as I close us in prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful for the reminder from Paul that we are to be different from this world, that we're not to love this world and that people should see that we are not like those who are of the darkness, of Belial. Rather, we belong to the kingdom of light. We know that it all begins with our confession of sin and recognition that we are sinners headed for for hell and for damnation. So we repent. We ask you for forgiveness. We acknowledge Jesus Christ as King and Savior. as the one who died for us so that we would be able to be with him forever. And those of us who have done that in this room, empower us now to live a life that is characterized by ambition to be pleasing to you no matter what. Those who have not, I asked that your Holy Spirit would work in their lives, that they would understand their sinful state and they would repent, turn to you, forsake their sin, forsake this life of darkness, serving Satan and his kingdom, advancing his cause. Turn to you, repent and follow Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord. Because we love you and we're so grateful for your salvation, we want to express that through this song. And so I ask that you would inhabit the praises of your people as they sing to you from hearts that are filled with thanks. Amen.